0: Well, as was mentioned earlier, uh, this last Wednesday evening, our Nicaragua team returned home. And it's so good to have them back. It's so good to have my my wife back. We survived without her, but it's good to have her back. Uh, And we praise the Lord for all those who went on that short-term trip uh, for the things that God did in them and through them, for the way that they were all able to represent us down there in Nicaragua. And as you'll hear when they give their update in a few weeks, uh, the trip was a good trip. It was a good trip, but it was also a hard trip. It was good in the sense that God gave the team great unity. That's one of the things we prayed for. God gave the team great unity in a ministry. He he greatly blessed their service there. He opened all kinds of doors for ministry for them. Uh, They were able to be a really great encouragement to our brothers and sisters down there in Nicaragua, especially to Maricela. But it was also a hard trip. It, It was hard in the sense in talking to them in the sense of what they saw. They saw poverty, really intense poverty and struggles. And at times, uh, as they saw the effects of sin so blatant right in their face, it moved them to tears and sometimes to anger. Maybe they'll share some of that with you. So they saw the darkness of Nicaragua. So it, it was good, but it was a hard trip. And as I was thinking about that, talking with Amy as she got back, and, and thinking about this season in which we find ourselves, I, I thought, well, that's actually a good description of this time of year. Christmas can be a good but hard season. I mean, it's a good time of year. We get to gather together with family and friends. We get to buy gifts that express our, our affection, our appreciation for another. another. We, we get to put up fun decorations and make fun memories. This week when Amy was gone, instead of doing those little gingerbread kits with the girls, me and the girls did a gingerbread mansion. We'd blow any little gingerbread house out of the water with this thing. But it was, it was a good time to, to build those memories, to have fun. So there's a lot of good, fun things about this time of year. But this can also be a hard time of year. On the one hand, uh, we often diminish the joy of the season because we get so stinking busy this time of year. Incredibly busy. Uh, I'm becoming more and more convinced that we as Americans don't know how to do a holiday. We don't know how to do a holiday. Instead of using a holiday to slow down, catch our breaths, and reflect, what do we do? We just try to cram a bunch of extra, quote-unquote, holiday activities into our already busy schedule. And then we get exhausted. So so we end up, at the end of this time, you're just exhausted. A lot of people say, "I, I need a vacation from the holiday. So it can be exhausting. But for some people, it's not so much the fullness of this time of year that makes things difficult it, it's the emptiness of this time of year this time of year when everybody's getting together with family and friends it can emphasize who you don't have there are single people out there who, who are longing for a spouse and this time of year seeing all the happy married couples you know, posting pictures on Facebook or Instagram of all their happy married Christmas things that they're doing it can make being single even harder and there are others people out there who are, who are married, but they're, they're longing to have kids. They want to have those little ones to wrap presents for. And to build holiday memories with, but God hasn't blessed them with that yet. And so this time of year, it can emphasize that, that emptiness. It can remind you of what you don't have. And for a lot of people, this time of year reminds them of the ones they once had. People that they've lost. This time of year, Christmas can be really difficult for those who have lost loved ones. It can bring up our grief in a time when everybody around us is trying to celebrate and be happy. But it's hard. It's hard to celebrate and be happy when you have a heart, right? Amen? So for a lot of folks, just to be honest, for a lot of folks, this time of year isn't an easy time of year. There are good parts of it, but it can also be hard. It can emphasize our busyness, our loneliness, And it can also just emphasize the darkness of this fallen world. Here's what I mean. It would be so nice. It would be so nice if the ugliness of this world, the crime, the oppression, the the political vitriol and angst, if it would just take a break for the holiday season. Amen? That would be so nice. But it doesn't. It's still there. And, and seeing it still there in light of all of the family time and the festivities and all the fun things we're trying to do, seeing the ugliness still there reminds us that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. There is a darkness in this world, and we cannot get away from it. We cannot get away from it. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself right about now, Ryan, what in the world are you doing this morning? This is Christmas Eve Sunday, Ryan. Why are you bumming us all out? Why are you bringing up all this stuff? Where's the joy? Where's the excitement, the happiness of Christmas? I didn't come here to be depressed today. And guess what? I know that. I know that. But I also know that we need to see Christmas, the Advent, for what it is. We need to see it for what it is. The reality is that we live in a dark world, whether that's the poor and struggling down there in Nicaragua, or the discouraged and overwhelmed and lonely right here among us. We live in a dark and difficult world. We see it on the nightly news. We see it on our Facebook stream. We hear it on the radio. It doesn't take a holiday. Now let's be honest. All of that darkness and difficulty, it can weigh on us. All of that darkness and difficulty can rob us of our hope. That's reality. That's the truth. Now, now we can come here on a Sunday morning, on Christmas Eve morning, and we can pretend that that isn't the truth. Uh, We can try to ignore it. We can put our heads in the sand. We can act like the darkness has gone on vacation for this one day. But it hasn't. That's not reality. And, And I know fundamentally we understand that. Fundamentally we understand that. But we also need to understand that we have... The Christmas season. We have the Advent season. Not to be a distraction from that reality. Instead, we are to celebrate the Advent to help us face that reality. Celebrate the Advent because it gives us hope. Amen? It gives us hope. That's what's at the root of the Advent. That's what's at the heart of Christmas. Hope. You see, although this season can bring on struggle and difficulty, this season is a season rooted in... Hope. It's a season rooted in hope for those struggling just to make it day to day down there in Nicaragua. It's a season rooted in hope for those struggling here with loneliness and loss. It's a season rooted in hope for those struggling with the darkness of just living in an ugly, fallen, sinful world. The Advent season is a season rooted in hope because the Advent itself is a declaration. The Advent itself is a declaration that hope itself has come. The Advent declares the dawn of hope. And that's what I want us to see this morning. This morning, I want us to be equipped this this Christmas Eve morning to do battle. To do battle with the, the despair and the discouragement that will try to rob us, rob us of our joy, rob us of our peace, rob us of our hope. I want us to be reminded again that the Advent points us to hope. What we celebrate this time of year, or at least what we should be celebrating this time of year, is praise God, everything has changed. Amen? Everything has changed. Brothers and sisters, we need to grab hold of that truth. We need to grab hold of that truth, hold it tightly, and use it to do battle. Do battle with these hearts of ours that are so prone to discouragement and despair. And so to help us do that this morning... To be our companion in our battle for hope this morning, I want us to enlist a a godly man, a man of great faith, a man who lived long, long ago, a man named Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, take them and turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. If you turn there, it's kind of like right in the middle of the Bible. It's a big book. It's not too hard to find. Isaiah chapter 9. And as you're turning there, let me just share with you that also, although Isaiah lived a long time ago, and he lived in a culture uh, very different from ours, spoke a language very different from ours, uh, Isaiah was very much like us. And what I mean by that is that he was like us in the fact that he was a man who was acquainted with difficulty. Isaiah knew difficulty. He was a man who was living in a difficult time, and he was seeing, like we do, a lot of darkness. Now, Isaiah was a prophet. I want you to understand, that, was, that wasn't an easy job. That was not an easy job. That was a difficult calling. Um, the Old Testament prophets, although they were predictors of the future, fundamentally they were preachers. They were preachers of truth, preachers of truth to God's people. And the focus of their preaching was the covenant that God had made with his people. The prophets were enforcers, in a sense, of the covenant. And they enforced it by calling the people to obedience and then warning the people against disobedience, the results of their disobedience under the covenant and, and that often meant warning people about their disobedience. That often meant that the prophets had the job of delivering bad news. They often had the difficult job of delivering bad news. God would call them to preach against unholiness, preach against unrighteousness. To the people call, call them to call the people to repent, to warn the people of coming judgment. The prophets often came as Messengers of judgment. It was a difficult job delivering that bad news. Preaching judgment. And that's just what Isaiah is doing back in chapter 8 of Isaiah. He's preaching judgment. Let me share with you just a little bit of what Isaiah says in chapter 8 so that we can better understand his point here in chapter 9. Now, in the beginning of chapter 8, Isaiah is preaching about the coming Assyrian invasion. Assyria, this country was going to come and invade Israel. And Assyria, you need to understand that they were the big bad bully on the block. Uh, they were this brutal ancient people who dominated the ancient world. And Isaiah warns Israel that because of their sin and weakness, because of turning from the covenant, God is going to use the Assyrians to come in and judge them. They're going to come in like, like a raging river, which, look at verse 8 of chapter 8, will sweep on into Judah, Isaiah said. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. In other words, they're going to come in and they're going to swarm you. You're going to be up to your neck in this, like a raging river. That's what Isaiah is preaching to the people. He's warning them the dark days are coming. As he says in the end of this chapter, starting in verse 21, look at the end of the chapter. He says, They, speaking of those who are going to suffer under the Assyrian invasion, they will pass through the land. They're going to be homeless, wandering around because everything's been destroyed greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, look at what's going to happen. They will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and against who else? Their God. And turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Isaiah is warning his people that dark and difficult days are going to come. They're only going to see gloom. They're only going to see distress and darkness. People will be discouraged and despairing because of the reality of their situation. And as we read through that, again, Christmas Eve morning, those those are difficult words to read, aren't they? But they were even more difficult words for Isaiah to share. That was a difficult vision for him to see. That that was going to happen to his people. That was a difficult vision for him to see. That was a difficult thing for him to share. But that wasn't all that he saw. You see, against that difficult backdrop, Isaiah is then given a message of amazing, overwhelming, world-transforming hope. Look now at how chapter 9 opens. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her, her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You see, right on the heels of this prophecy of judgment, Isaiah then sees hope. He sees the end of the darkness. He sees the dawn of hope. And one of the first things that I want you to understand this morning is that Isaiah here sees a day for people like us. A day for people like us. A day for those who see darkness. Those who are discouraged by the darkness. Isaiah is seeing an end to the darkness. He's seeing an end to it. Now, in order to help you more fully understand what Isaiah is seeing here, we need to take a moment and just talk about the geography that he mentions, the places that he mentions. He talks about the land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, the land beyond the Jordan, this Galilee of the nations. And those are regions up in northern Israel. Uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, those were two tribes of Israel. And the land given to those two tribes back in the book of Joshua was the land to the north. It was the land by the Sea of Galilee. And and through much of Israel's history, that area there in the north was populated by both Jews and Gentiles. And they had a mixed population up there in the north. You see, when Israel came into the promised land, they, they never did really have much success in taking the north. So it was still full of foreign people with their foreign gods. That's why Isaiah here calls it Galilee of the nations, literally, Galilee of the Gentiles. It was the, the difficult outskirts of Israel. It's a long way away from Jerusalem, a long way away from, from the capital, from the, the temple. But that's the location that Isaiah mentions here, the northern outskirts of Israel. And what's particularly interesting about Isaiah mentioning this location is that when Assyria came in. Again, this instrument of judgment. When Assyria came in and descended upon Israel, guess where they hit first? They hit the north first. Uh, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, this Galilee of the Gentiles. That was the region that the Assyrians attacked first. That area was hit full force by that invading army. And because of that, that area suffered for generations. Galilee up, up in the north. That became a very hard place to live. The people who lived there, they were people who knew darkness. They were people who knew discouragement. They were people who knew struggle. They they were very much, that place was very much like what our team saw in Nicaragua. A lot of really intense poverty, a lot of difficulty, a a challenging place for people to live. But here, look at what's going on. Here, Isaiah describes a complete reversal for these people. He says in verse 1, look it. There will be what? No. Gloom for her who was in anguish. Now notice Isaiah here is picking up the same terminology that he used there in verse 22 of chapter 8. There he spoke of distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. But here he says, no gloom, no more gloom, no more cloud of darkness, no more despair for her who was in anguish. And the picture of reversal is even more pronounced there. Look at verse 2. There he speaks about those who are in darkness, those who are despairing, seeing what? Seeing a great light. Now look at what he describes here. He describes the people who Who walked in darkness. Think about that for a moment. We know what that's like to walk around in the dark. Right? Is that comfortable to be walking around in the dark? No. It's difficult. You're not sure where you're going. You can't see. You don't know something's going to trip you. It's not comfortable at all. But here Isaiah takes that experience. And he uses that as a metaphor for a way of life. He describes these people who walk in darkness. These people who dwell in darkness. It's their everyday reality. Struggle. Confusion uncertainty, doubt, and fear. He actually describes them as those who dwell in a land of deep darkness. Now, if you have an NIV translation this morning or the New King James, uh, you'll notice that it translates that phrase a little different. Instead of a land of deep darkness, uh, those translations bring the phrase across as in the land of the shadow of death. The shadow of death. And they translate it that way because the Hebrew word that's used here is used... Was used by the Hebrews to speak of such trouble, such difficulty, that it was like being under death's shadow. It was used to speak of things that felt so dark they felt dead. And that's how Isaiah describes this place. That's a discouraging place to be, brothers and sisters, a place that feels dead. That's, that can be a hopeless place, right? A place that feels dead. But that's what Isaiah is describing. But into this hopeless place. Look, look at what Isaiah says here. Into this hopeless place, this land of deep darkness, what entered? What entered? Yeah, light. They have seen a great light. Something has entered and it's driving away the darkness. It's shown upon them and they've experienced it. And I love the way Isaiah puts this. Look at the text. This light is both an object of reality. It's a fact. This is the light that has shown on them. This isn't a figment of their imaginations. But this is also their subjective experience. They've seen it. It didn't just happen outside of them and, oh, no, they, they missed it. No, they saw it. Those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. They have seen hope. Hope. That's the picture that Isaiah is painting here. That's what he's seeing. These people who are so discouraged and despairing in this dark place have now seen Hope. Hope has come to them. That's the picture that Isaiah is painting. But before we look at how Isaiah then goes on to describe that hope, I want to pause just for a moment and make sure that we understand what Isaiah is doing here, an important aspect of what he's doing. Here Isaiah is giving a prophetic word. He's actually writing several years, possibly decades, before the Assyrian invasion. So he's he's looking into the future. He's writing many years before the Assyrian invasion and then, many years before the events that he's describing here in chapter 9. So Isaiah is looking into the future. But do you notice that he's writing about those events in this coming light using what tense? What verb tense? Past tense. He says the people have seen, the light has shown. So he's describing future events, but he's doing it using the past tense. Why is he doing that? Well, because the events that he is describing are as certain as if they had already happened. They're as certain as if they have already happened. As Hebrew scholar describes, J. Alec Motyer, he says this, Isaiah's hope is a sure hope, so sure that according to Hebrew idiom, it is written even in the past tense as though it had happened already. So what Isaiah is seeing, I want you to understand this, what Isaiah is seeing is a certain, an assured, a sure hope. He's seeing the dawning of hope. And the next several verses here, he goes on to describe this hope, this light that is coming. Look at the text. He begins by describing it as a dawning of joy. We see that in verse 3. Notice here how verse 3 opens. What's the first word there in verse 3? You. And the you being talked about is God. He says you. And and here Isaiah's language has shifted a little bit. He's no longer using this third person descriptive describing these events. He's now using second person He's addressing someone. And he says, look at the text. You, God, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. You see, Isaiah is here speaking before the people, but he's speaking to God. He's addressing God himself. And he's saying, God, you're the one who's going to bring an end to this. You're the one who's going to bring joy to those who are in gloom. You're the one who's going to, to bring joy to those who are in anguish because of judgment and sin. Those who are in deep darkness. God, you're the one who's going to bring this reversal. And notice the text here. This reversal is for more than just those dwelling in the land to the north. Yes, the dawn will begin in Galilee of the Gentiles. But it's going to spread to all of God's people. He says, you have multiplied the nation. So this is for all of God's people. And what God is bringing for those in darkness is joy. He's bringing in a fullness of joy. Look again at the text. He says, You have increased its joy, the people's joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil." So here Isaiah is talking about two kinds of joy. Joy at the harvest and the joy of victory. There's in these two metaphors. There's one Hebrew scholar points out both harvest and And victory are seen as divine gifts in the Old Testament. Harvest belongs to the sphere of creation. Plunder, victory, and war belongs to the sphere of of history. So these contrasting spheres here express every sort of joy known. In other words, these two metaphors are being used to work together to to give us a picture of this all-encompassing joy. The joy of creation, the joy of history. This is a fullness of joy. God is going to bring a fullness of joy. Not a little joy but a fullness of joy to those who are dwelling in darkness and despair. But this joy that the Lord is going to bring is going to be more than just a happy feeling. Sometimes when we think of joy, we think about that. Oh, I've got a happy feeling. It's going to be more than just a happy feeling. It's going to be a joy grounded in life-changing reality. It will be grounded in deliverance. Look at verses 4 and 5. Look at verses 4 and 5. Here, Isaiah sees the dawning of deliverance for those who are in darkness. He says... For the yoke of his burden, the, the slavery, and the staff for his shoulders, and the rod of his oppressor, Lord, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is a picture, I want you to understand this, this is a picture of deliverance. This is a picture of deliverance from subjugation. Isaiah pictures people here who were under the yoke, who were under the rod of their oppressor. But those people are now going to be delivered. God himself is going to come and deliver them. He will break the yoke. He will break the rod. He will liberate this people. And and the picture that's used here is he's going to do it just like in the days of Judges, just like when he used Gideon to deliver the people from the Midianites. That's what's meant here as on the day of Midian. Now, remember that story, Gideon? And the deliverance, how much did work did Gideon do in that story? Not a lot, right? The Lord did the heavy lifting. All Gideon had to do was blow the trumpet and shout and break the pitcher, right? The Lord was the one who provided the victory. The Lord did the heavy lifting. He was the one who delivered the people. And it will be the same way with what Isaiah sees. The Lord will be the one doing the heavy lifting when it comes to this deliverance. And when the Lord provides this deliverance... Isaiah sees it as a permanent deliverance. That's what that big bonfire in verse 5 is all about. Isaiah says that the fuel for the bonfire is going to be the armor of war, the warrior's boots and their, their battle garments. And they're going to burn those things. They're going to burn their boots. They're going to burn their battle garments because guess what? They don't need them anymore. There's no more war. There's no more need to fight. This deliverance that the Lord is going to bring is going to be a permanent deliverance. This is what Isaiah sees. This is the coming day that he sees. It's going to be a day of deliverance, a day of joy, a coming dawning of hope for those who are dwelling in despair and darkness. Think about it. This prophet who was called to deliver difficult messages has now given this overwhelming message of hope. And he gets to preach it. And he gets to preach it to people like us, people who face difficulty, people who know darkness, people who long for something better. And Isaiah here says it's coming. It's coming. Isaiah is looking to the future, and he is seeing a sur- sure and certain hope. But continue looking at this text here. Look at what all of this hope, this deliverance, this joy, look at what it's rooted in. Or maybe a better way to say it is, look at who it is rooted in. What I want us to see now, we've seen a day for people like us. Now I want us to see the deliverer for people like us. Deliver for those in darkness, those discouraged by the darkness. Isaiah sees who God will use to end this darkness. Look at verses 6 and 7. And These are verses you know, but look at it now in context. For to us, Isaiah says, the child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah looks and he sees this day of deliverance, this coming day of deliverance, rooted in this coming deliverer. And at first, look at the text. This deliverer seems so unlikely. Isaiah sees what? What's the first thing that he notices here? A child. A child. But this is not just any child, this is a son given. A son given to God's people. This is a king text goes on to tell us that this male child will be of the line of David. He will rule on David's throne. He will rule over David's kingdom. He will establish it. He will bring justice and righteousness for God's people. And this king will take upon himself, upon his shoulders, the government of the people. This isn't the rule of the masses. This isn't the rule of foreign invaders. This is the rule of one, the king that God has given And Isaiah sees this one coming. And he's the one who's going to bring joy. He's the one who's going to bring deliverance. This is the one who's going to shine as a great light to those who are in darkness. He's the one who's going to drive away the darkness. The king, I want you to understand this. The king is the light. The king is the light. And he's the light because he won't be like any other king. He will be perfectly suited to rule. Look again at the text. He will be called what? Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father. Father prince of peace. Isaiah shows the one who's going to be perfect in every way. He's going to be perfect in every way. He will be perfect in wisdom. That's the idea in this title, Wonderful Counselor. The, the Hebrew word translated here as wonderful, that's the nearest word that the Hebrews have to the idea of supernatural. Supernatural. This coming deliverer, this coming king will possess a wisdom he will give counsel that, that is above. It's beyond human wisdom, human counsel. He will not be like the leaders of this world. He will not make foolish decisions. He will not be like those who start wars because of folly and pride or who mismanage government because of short-sightedness or ignorance. Now, he will possess wisdom to rule perfectly, wisdom even beyond that of, of David's son Solomon. This king will be perfect in wisdom. And he will also be perfect in power. Isaiah says, look at it. This one will be called Mighty God. Mighty God. Now, I think you know this already, but that's, that's a shocking title. And I say that's a shocking title because the title Isaiah uses in other places for Yahweh, for God himself. It's a title that the Old Testament uses repeatedly for God himself. But here Isaiah says that this, this child is going to be born. This son that's going to be given, this king, will be given this title, mighty God. And this this title, mighty God, that was a title used for Yahweh. It was a a title used of the true living God in his power. He was the mighty God, the one who possesses all power. But this title of absolute power will be given to this one. And he will be called the mighty God. He will be the one possessing all power without limits. A leader who is able to do whatever he wants. He's got the wisdom to figure it out and the power to accomplish it will have the power to do whatever he wants. But that kind of power can sometimes be a scary thing in the hands of a leader, right? What's the saying? That power corrupts, absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely. But here's the thing, not in the hands of this one. Not in the hands of this one. You see, not only is he perfect in wisdom and perfect in power, but he's also perfect in compassion. That's what that third title, Everlasting Father, is. Is driving at. Father, that term. Uh, in that culture, that's the way that the people looked at the king. He was to be father, he was to be the benevolent protector of the people. He was to step into that, that fatherly, fatherly role, showing concern, showing care, showing compassion for his people. The king was to be like a good father, showing love and protection for his children. But here, Isaiah sees, look at this title here. Isaiah sees one who will do this, not for a day, not for a week, not for a couple years, not till he gets tired and fed up with the kids. He sees one who will be fatherly for how long? Forever. Everlasting father. Perfect compassion. An everlasting father. He's not going not to bail on family. He's not going to die off and be replaced by a wicked king or a wicked stepfather. No, he will never... Not be compassionate and caring for his people. He will be called everlasting father. And his compassion for them will be fully realized in the perfection that he brings. He's going to be the prince of peace. He's going to be the prince who brings peace. He will be a ruler who comes and makes everything as it should be. That's what that word peace, that's what it means. It's the translation of the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom, that word in the Hebrew, doesn't just mean peace as in the cessation of conflict. Okay, they're not at war right now, but they don't really like each other. It's not that kind of peace, a cessation of conflict. Instead, it means peace in the sense of no more disharmony, no more discord, everything as it should be. Everything as it was created to be. I'll give you a good picture of this. Eden, before the fall, was a place of Shalom. Shalom. It was a place where everything there was in perfect harmony. The man and the woman. There wasn't any marital disputes before the fall. Everything was in perfect harmony. The man and the woman were rightly related to one another. They were rightly related to creation. And all of it was rightly related to God. The world was in harmony. And the one who is coming, who Isaiah sees, is going to bring that with him. That's peace, that harmony. He's going to make everything as it should be forever. Look at what Isaiah says. From this time forth and forevermore. So Isaiah sees this one, this one who is perfect in wisdom, perfect in power, perfect in compassion, and who will bring perfect harmony to the world. And when you realize the gravity of the one that Isaiah sees, you realize that this prophecy is much bigger than just the folks up there in northern Israel. Yes, it is for them. This one will be the source of their hope and their joy and their deliverance. But he's coming to be more than their hope. This one who Isaiah sees coming is coming to be the hope for all of us. For all of us. He's coming to be the one who will drive away all of the darkness, overcome all of the struggle, all of the poverty, all of the brokenness. He will come and bring true and everlasting shalom. Make the world as it should be. And this is is true. This isn't just wishful thinking. This isn't just a nice story we tell ourselves. This is true. Isaiah sees this one who is coming. But this is such an important question for us this morning. Who is this one that Isaiah all these years ago saw? Who is this one? Who is this child that is born, this son that is given, this coming king? You know, right? Who is this one? He's the reason that we're all here this morning, right? And not just Christmas Eve, Sunday morning. He's the reason we're here every single week. Amen? Jesus Christ is the one. God the son, Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one that Isaiah all those years ago saw. Jesus is the one. And the gospel tells us, the gospels tell us, that he is the hope that dawned all those years ago in Galilee. There among those backwater towns in that out-of-the-way region of Galilee where life was hard and people were burdened and so many were despairing, there the light of Jesus first shined. Gospel of Matthew tells us, chapter 4, says this, Leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. And then Matthew quotes this text, Isaiah 9. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, light has dawned. Jesus came. And he first showed that light there in Galilee and he preached there and he preached with a wisdom and authority that the people hadn't witnessed before. They said, what is this? We've never heard anybody teach like this. One who walked among them walked among them with perfect divine wisdom. The wonderful counselor had come. But you know this, he didn't just preach. He showed power. Unmatched, unrivaled power. He healed the sick. I mean, people who were seriously sick, he spoke words, and they weren't sick anymore. People who were blind, blind from birth, who couldn't see, he made them see again. Not metaphorically, really. People who were lame, who couldn't walk, take your bed, get up, and walk. And what happened? They did it. Even dead people came out of their grave because he commanded them to do so. He displayed power over demonic forces and the forces of nature. In Mark chapter 4, we watch as he's out there in the boat and there's a storm. And remember what he says? Hush, be still. Bam. The wind and the waves are calmed. And then he lands the boat upon the shore and there's the man with a legion of demons and boom, he commands those. Legion of demons out of that man. Jesus Christ, the mighty God had come to Galilee. And he came with perfect compassion. From Galilee all the way to Jerusalem, Jesus displayed compassion. He was moved again and again and again because of the brokenness and the darkness that he saw. Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb. He wept over Jerusalem. This was no callous callous stoic. He was a compassionate king who came to love And to care for his people. Staggering compassion. He was a king who would come to care for his people, but he was also the king that they didn't want to receive. They took his compassion for weakness. They claimed his power was the work of Beelzebub. They argued that his teaching was blasphemy. He came, and those who dwelt in darkness rejected the light. Or so it seemed. But the darkness could not overcome the light, praise God. The darkness could not overcome the light. Sin could not defeat this one who Isaiah saw for, mark this down, sin was the reason that he came. Sin was the reason that he came. Later on in Isaiah's book, he gives another prophecy. He sees another vision of this coming king. But this time he sees him as a, a suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 53, we read this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, on this one, on this king, the iniquity of us all. He laid it all. All of our sin, all of our darkness he laid it on jesus and beloved that was always it was always the plan it was always the plan the light shone to defeat the darkness but the darkness wasn't simply outside of us it was in us brothers and sisters the reason for the darkness is our sin the reason for the darkness is our sin And here's the thing. You might not like to hear this, but this is true. We're all culpable for the darkness because we've all sinned. We've all contributed, brothers and sisters, to the ugliness of this world. We've all contributed with our our selfishness, our deception, our greed, our lust, our lack of empathy, our lack of compassion, our unwillingness to love others as God loves us. We've all contributed. And so reality is that God has every right to leave us in the mess that we have created and to condemn us to that mess forever. That's yours. You made it. You deal with it. Just like rebellious Israel back there in Isaiah chapter 8. We brought the darkness upon ourselves. My God is so good. Amen. And so kind. Instead of coming to condemn us, he sends us the one who brings us peace. He sends us the Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ came with wisdom, with power, and compassion to accomplish the plan that would bring us true peace. And on that cross, the Prince of Peace died to make peace. He died to undo the separation, to undo the disharmony that was created way back there in in Eden. When the man and the woman chose to rebel against God. That disharmony that we've all contributed to since. Jesus came. He came to reconcile God and man. He came to deal with the cause of our separation, our sin. He died. He paid the price. He bore the judgment so that each and every one of us can know Peace, shalom, harmony with God. And beloved, that's the peace that you can know today. You can know and enjoy that peace today. Today you can know, you can know that you are loved. You can know that you are accepted. You are welcomed by holy God himself. Today, you can know what it is. You can experience what it is to have all of your guilt, all those things. Man, I don't want people to know that stuff. All of those things that there's shame connected to. To have all that guilt removed, washed away. To be truly free to love and enjoy the one who made you. And you can know that. You can experience that. Not because, oh, you need to get your act together. Not because you figured out how to do enough good deeds to get God to pay attention to you. No, you can know this because the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You can know this because those who dwell in deep darkness, on them, light has shone. On you, light has shone. God's grace has shown in the person of Jesus. While we were yet sinners, Christ what? Died for us. That's the light that's shining upon us right now. Hope, joy, deliverance, peace with God. All because the Prince of Peace. Because he came, he lived, he died for our sins. It's all because of what we're celebrating this morning the Advent. It's the dawn of hope. But here's the thing. As we rejoice in the advent, the king who came who came to deal with our sin, we need to know, as we rejoice in that advent, we need to know that another advent is coming. Another advent is coming. The dawn of hope that came with that baby in a manger, who grew and lived and preached and healed and died and rose again, that one that Isaiah saw, the dawn of hope that began with him, It's going to reach the fullness of day when Jesus comes again. Amen. It's going to reach the fullness of day. He is coming again. And he will bring with him an end to all despair. And end to all of our brokenness. an end to all of the darkness. The dawn of hope that began in Galilee. Will become the day of joy and peace forever. With the return of Jesus Christ. Praise God the king is coming back. Amen. The king is coming back. So what we celebrate, brothers and sisters, today is the glorious beginning. The glorious beginning. What we celebrate today is the glorious beginning. And we celebrate, as we celebrate, we long for the culmination. We long for the culmination. But here's the thing. I want you to understand. We are to long for it with a sure and certain hope. A sure and certain hope. Just like Isaiah. Look at the way Isaiah ends this. Look there at the end of verse 7. Does he say, I hope it's going to come out this way? Does he say, it's all riding on us to come out this way? What does he say? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah knew his God. And he knew that what God promises, praise God, he accomplishes. Amen? And so that's where his confidence was. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish. He knew it was going to happen. So, in the day of darkness, Isaiah found hope. In the day of darkness, Isaiah found hope. He knew a new day was coming. He saw a greater day. A day of the fullness of joy. A day of absolute deliverance. A day of never-ending peace. And that sustained Isaiah. Isaiah. That gave him hope. That what he saw in the world around him, that's not all that there is. That's not all that there was. It's only temporary. Better things lay upon the horizon. And that's the hope, brothers and sisters, that we need to live in today. Here's the thing. We have a better perspective than Isaiah did. Don't we? We have a better perspective than Isaiah did. We've seen the child born. We've seen the son given. We've marveled at who he is, Jesus Christ, and what he's done. And when we've already experienced, we've experienced the great and glorious peace that he has brought, that peace with God himself. Isaiah longed to know what we have seen and we have tasted. And yet, brothers and sisters, there's more for us to see and taste, amen? Because we still know darkness and discouragement. We still see the ugliness of sin. All around us and, and in these hearts of ours, we still cry out for our deliverance. Now, here's my challenge to you this morning. Will we let that that we see, will we let that, that feeling that comes with what we see, will we let that overwhelm us, will we let that discourage us, will we grow despairing? Will we let the ugliness of living in a fallen world rob us of our hope? It can. It most definitely can. But brothers and sisters, we need to do battle. And what I want to encourage you this morning is we we need to do battle. We need to use the advent in this battle. The advent itself is a declaration that hope itself has come. The advent declares the dawn of hope. And so we, brothers and sisters, we need to live in the light of this dawn. We need to live here not just, oh, it's Christmas time. We need to live in the light of this every single day. Living in the light of the coming of Jesus. We need to live in in the light of that truth that our Savior has come. That he has delivered us from the darkness of sin and condemnation. That he has given us peace with God. That he has filled us by the Spirit with joy. We need to live in that truth. Day in, day out. And living in the light of that truth, guess what? That gives us hope. That gives us hope. It gives us hope that the people down there in Nicaragua won't always know struggle and suffering. Living in that light gives us hope that our loneliness one day will end and we will be reunited with those that we have loved and lost. Living in the light of that hope Loving that light gives us hope that what we see in this world, the ugliness of sin and darkness, its days are numbered. Its days are numbered. Because Jesus has come. And praise God, he's coming again. That's the hope that the Advent gives. The Advent is a declaration that hope itself has come. The Advent declares the dawn of hope. And brothers and sisters, we need to live in that light. Every single day. Jesus has come. And he's coming again. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are. We praise you that the things that Isaiah so long ago foresaw, they weren't just nice, helpful stories made up to encourage people. But Isaiah was seeing you. Seeing who you are and what you do. And we praise you for that. We praise you. Lord Jesus, I praise you for the way that so many here in this room have already tasted this. Hmm. They know Joy and hope when they used to just know darkness all the time. They know peace. Know what it's like to be forgiven. Transformed, given purpose, meaning. They know it because of you. Praise you for that. And we praise you that more is still coming. That there is a day coming when you are going to return and you are going to make everything as it should be. Shalom will once again rule and reign over the world. No more darkness, no more tears, no more mourning, no more poverty and classes, no more hatred and rejection. No more feeling alone, struggling. All will be as it should be because of you. And I praise you that this is not just a story we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better. But this is a sure and certain future. So Lord Jesus, help us as we reflect on what you have accomplished. To look forward to what you will do. And help us to be people who live in that place of hope, who live in the dawn of hope, who let that hope just wash over us. So that in spite of what we see, we are not discouraged and despairing. Instead, we go into what we see with joy and a hope and we proclaim your gospel. In your truth. That others might join us in this transformation. And long for that day of fulfillment. Lord Jesus we love you. We thank you for giving us. This time of year to remember and reflect. But help us to live in the light of these things all year round. These things we pray in your name. Amen.